everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. So, you guys have John 6 open? Could you guys stand? We do this to honor God. These are his words to us. Uh, We believe that it's not just information, but that the Holy Spirit can take the words of God and do something in our hearts to transform us. And so we pray that the the words spoken today that are read from the Bible, but also that I share, would do what you want them to, God. So come Holy Spirit, meet us here today in our pain, in our joy, in our confusion, in our doubt, in our anger, pour out your peace. Amen. So John chapter 6, verses 35. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. You guys can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open, though, because this is actually an example where Jesus performs a miracle, and then he explains uh, the meaning. So one of the things that we find is that with miracles comes a message. Now, it would be a false uh, conclusion to say the only reason that Jesus does miracles is to deliver a message, and yet the, the mercy... and the generosity of Jesus here in the performing of a miracle comes along with the teaching of like, I have given you food for your stomach, but what you need more is me. Like, I am the sustaining force to life itself. And there's no spiritual life. uh, There's no eternal life. There's no really full, meaningful life apart from me. So just as bread was the staple food of that time, it would have been, uh, in my growing up, you know, we had meat and potatoes. Like, that's, that was the food you kept going back to. Without meat and potatoes, we would have, you know, starved in the Midwest uh, where I grew up. Without, without pita bread, uh, in that time and place, there, there wouldn't have been enough calories for people to, to live. And so Jesus is, is saying something that's pretty loaded, that's pretty significant. Uh, that that has implications for everybody who hears him speak. And so we'll be doing this in the Chosen series, like I said, and I'll actually, as we read through this story, we'll, we'll jump into the video here pretty quick. So it says, After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. So if we have a, a map that we can show quickly, Uh, If you don't know the geography, Jerusalem, where a lot of the action happens, where Jesus 
uh, has his triumphal entry, you know, the location of Easter, of the resurrection, that's in Jerusalem. And if you can see the Dead Sea, that's a big body of water. Jerusalem's pretty much right at the top and west in the middle. There's a, there's a, you can't see it on this map, but there's a little mountain range that kind of goes up through the middle. And if you go toward the Mediterranean, you have uh, pretty, like, arable ground. Like, there's green, there's trees. If you go east toward the Dead Sea, it's just all wilderness, and it's dead most of the year. But as you go north, the climate gets a little better, and the rains from Galilee and northward will find their way into the Sea of Galilee before they travel down the Jordan River uh, into the Dead Sea. And because it's, there's no outlet, that sea is full of salt, and there's, there's not much life there because of that. Um, it, it's, the salt content is just so incredibly high. The, the far side of the Sea of Galilee just simply means, like, from a Jewish perspective, it's over there. So we're talking about the east side, probably the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, like geopolitically, we're moving even farther away from the center of like uh, practice Jewish faith. So we're finding a mix of Jewish people along with Gentiles. We're not far from the Decapolis cities, which would have been the 10 cities that Rome sets up basically to bring their culture to this area. And so there's a real mix of Jewish, pagan, and like Greco-Roman culture coming to hear Jesus in this moment. And, and this, this is significant, and I'll, I'll bring that significance to you, but this is a mishmash of people that have come to hear the teachings of Jesus, not unlike the, the audience of the Sermon on the Mount. But in verse 2, it says, A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw what? Miracles, miraculous signs as he healed the sick. But with those miracles, he would address his disciples and the crowds and teach them, right? So then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, which is John indicating to us, like, remember the Exodus? Remember how the people of Israel were taken out of slavery, and then they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Do you guys remember what happens during this time? What do they eat mostly? Manna. There is bread. There is a miraculous provision of manna that was savory in the sense that it filled your tummy up, and uh, but sweet also like honey. And so G John, and Jesus will connect this point later, is saying, Put your antenna up. Something's going to happen that is uh, going to be like something that happened in the history of Israel, but Jesus is going to do it in a new way. Part of what's new is it's not just for the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, but for this entire crowd. Verse 5, Jesus soon saw this huge crowd coming to look for him again, and turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? And so here's the chosen.
This is wonderful bread, Telemachus. I know it's not enough. Oh, it's enough for me. I can do a lot with this. Thank you. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Did you find some bread? If they've got bread, be ready. We'll probably be first. Feed them. What has changed? Are we... Organize the people into groups of 50 and 100. Gather up 12 baskets to distribute the loaves and fish. Was I unclear? Ah, no. This feels familiar. Maybe. Let's go. Does anyone have a basket? Please borrow a basket. Please. 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 Oh, you. Please. Come on. Yes, over here. Feed them. Anyone? Yes. Anyone have a basket? Anyone? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the gardens, becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and make their nests in its branches. I've got one. Just keep on, break up the bread. How need do we have? Now you take some. There. Give me some of that. Like yeah, yeah. There's, there's. Anyone need some? It's better than the tail. That's the last of it. Yeah, that's the last of it. All right, Marcus, you can have your basket back. I know you guys just want to keep watching, uh, but you can at home if you 
or catch up or whatever. But okay, so after this, this is verse 12. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, like in this political sense, to you know, throw Rome's occupation out, he slipped away into the hills by himself. One of the things I've noticed, maybe you have too if you've tried to watch The Chosen, is that it takes something from you, for you. Like you have, you have to participate. It's a little different than watching Ted Lasso or Downton Abbey or what are you guys watching right now? Somebody, the Chosen, that's good. Bluey. What? <laughs> okay, well, anyway, apparently everyone's watching Ted Lasso and The Chosen. Uh, but so as I watch Ted Lasso, like I can think, oh, that's, that's funny. Or man, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm watching the show and I'm feeling emotions. Isn't that nice? Uh, but I, I get to consume like passively the television or the series that I'm watching. But with The Chosen, because I believe this is real, it's a little more confrontational, like it challenges me in my worldview in like the simple fact like this, this happened. And of course, I believe this happened. Like I, I, I trust the words of the Bible. I grew up uh, honoring and believing that it was true, but I, I'm forced to push myself to the place of, but if I saw this happen, would I believe it? Or would I come up with, would I bring my skepticism and explain this away? Uh, not just this miracle, but many others. If I heard testimony about a man down in Lancaster County who was multiplying fish and loaves and healing the sick, would I believe it? And if I heard his words, uh, and if they, con if they were confrontational, if it wasn't what I wanted to hear, if it challenged like some of my core beliefs, would I follow him? So I, it's easier for me, at least in my context, maybe to believe the words of the Bible because I was raised trusting them. But in many ways, the way that even Jesus' disciples were raised are being challenged because did you see what just happened? He broke bread with Gentiles. And this is controversial because breaking bread with somebody, again, it's a symbolic act. Um, you didn't sit down and sign a contract, for instance, uh, after an exchange of goods or services. You broke bread with the person. It was a sign of friendship. Like, I trust you, you trust me. We're in relationship together. It was a sign of uh, friendship and of family. It was, it was inviting someone into your home. And, and it was intimate. And there were rules around, put around who you could invite as a friend into your even space because Gentiles were considered, you know, those people unclean. They'll actually, they'll, they'll contaminate you in a spiritual sense. 
And so for Jesus to perform this miracle in a mixed crowd, and then with even the 12 baskets, it's like those 12 baskets, you know, it's practical. There were 12 disciples. Uh, so everybody, one basket per, per man, at least. But why were there 12 disciples? Why were there 12 baskets? Representing the 12 tribes of Israel that were, you know, established around the 12 sons of Jacob. And so basically there's this undercurrent of the things that you thought were just for you are now being shared. You thought the blessing of God was only meant for the 12, but, but not just for the people in church on a Sunday is my blessing for. My blessing is for all the humans. I invite them to my table. I want friendship with all the humans. If they would come, if you would serve them. And so this is, this is a message that would have been hard to accept and maybe believe. But as, as somebody uh, who was raised in, you know, 20th century Western Civ, uh, mostly, you know, a, a Christian context, but a, an increasingly secular culture, even in church, the, the belief in miracles was very theoretical uh, and safer in the Bible than in real life. Well, I mean, the Bible was real life too, but, you know, like present day real life. And so reading this miracle, for some reason in particular, challenges my belief in what God is doing and wants to do uh, in the world today. Because, you know, healing, healing the sick, I don't know. It's like, okay, yeah, you're, you were sick, you were better. I, I, can, I can explain that sort of, like there, there was something physiological that happened. What happens when five loaves and two fish feed uh, probably a lot more than 5,000 people because the, the census here is just regarding the men. So let's say 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000. That is beyond what I can explain rationally. And I realized uh, I've been in the vineyard now close to 15 years, like not this church, but other vineyard churches. Uh, and it was new to me when I started to hear people talk about the miracles that they had personally experienced. Uh, I had heard, again, I had a theoretical belief that they used to happen, but a, a lot of skepticism toward any miracles that I had heard of. But I, I don't think I'd ever met anyone who had, like, experienced a miracle in their life after, let's see here, I was probably 25, 25 years in the church, no miracles. We prayed for the doctors to, you know, do their surgery well, which is good. Like, pray for doctors uh, as people have surgery. But uh, I come to the vineyard, and there's a man with, like, a serious cancer. And it's, it's, it's basically, like, there was not hope in what the doctors were going to do. Let's put it that way. Uh, he had a, a tumor. It was, it was stage four. Uh, they were going to remove the tumor surgically, and then they were going to just start blasting the guy with chemo and radiation, like, everything they had to give him a chance. And I remember, uh, you know, the church lays hands on him and they go to do the surgery and there was still a tumor, but the tumor had dried up. The doctor said, we've never seen anything like, it was a shell. 
Like the, the cancerous part had been like vaporized and all that was left with the shell. And I, I was like, what? I, you seem normal. I mean, as normal as anybody is in a vineyard church, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, you can't art like they had scans, they had biopsies. Uh, you know, they had done like some kind of needle biopsy on the thing. And they, they now like they could hold in their hands what was left in the tumor. And the only thing that changed was people laid hands on and prayed. And it got a little more confusing and complicated because while that cancer was vaporized, it was two or three years later where other cancers came back and he died very quickly. And so what was that miracle for? I don't know all the answers to that. I know that he got another two to three years with his wife and kids and his church. Uh, I know that he got to share his story over and over and over again about the power and the love of God. I started to hear about people who couldn't have kids receive prayer and have kids. And, and it became personal for us when we had some friends who, sorry, also still emotional for us, I guess, because uh, you know that our story intersects with that reality, but I'll share that later if you ask me about it. Uh, we had some friends who had basically gone through the process of uh, fertility treatments and had lost hope in their ability to have kids. And they weren't vineyard people, but they were visiting us. And so they come to our vineyard church. This is in an Iowa context. And we lay hands on them and we pray for a miracle. And at the next opportunity, they're pregnant. And it's all natural. And they have a baby. And I think that's amazing. And they just thought it was kind of a one-off thing, right? So they're not like doing anything to stop the babies. And so like suddenly they have two babies and it was kind of on accident. And then a few years later, now they have three in diapers. And now they're starting to think maybe if they don't want more, they should, you know. <laughs> but it's like, you know, this was a fluky thing. And yet you, you can see like there's reason to believe that a miracle happened. I want to read, uh, I want to read a story if you're reading Surprised by the Power of the Spirit with us for a second session, this is a story about Heidi Baker, and we have a picture of her too. She uh, was raised in Southern California, uh, she, you know, was on, on track to just like live the country club life, you know, uh, on the beach and in the, you know, the very wealthy family, decides to go to Mozambique and care for orphans. She's been there a, a while at this point, and, uh, but she's burnt out. Like she, she comes back to the U S and is, I mean, on the verge of quitting, but goes to visit the vineyard church in the, the Toronto airport. Uh, at the time it was a vineyard church and she's, she's feeling refreshed. She's expecting miracles to break out. Uh, she goes back to the orphanage that she had established. And instead of, uh, you know, 
God pouring out blessing in, in the way that you would expect or want. Like now it's really easy and now uh, the kids are, I don't know, better behaved and better fed and all that stuff. What happens is the government gives them 48 hours to vacate. And a contract was put out on Heidi's life. And the only place they had to go was a small office flat uh, several miles away in the city of Maputo. So they're hiding. But the children find them. This, these are her words now. We were inundated by our very most needy children, the youngest street orphans with absolutely no relatives or friends to whom they could go. They had walked barefoot 15 miles into the city and streamed into our flat. They told us they had been beaten with large sticks for singing, and they said they would go where we go because they were, they were going to worship the Lord. When I told them we had no place for them, their simple reply was, but mama, you said, you, you said there would always be enough. What could I say? They kept piling in, maybe a hundred of them. We stuffed bunk beds in our dilapidated little garage full of grease and cobwebs. Loaned army cots were all over our yard and driveway and urine ran in our hallway. We hosed the kids down to try to wash them. All our doors and windows were full of faces. We didn't know how to cope. We had nowhere near the food or cooking and sanitation facilities we needed. Boxes, clothes, and suitcases were piled high everywhere, and everyone was totally exhausted. Everything was in complete chaos, and more children kept gravitating to our gate. We ran out of strength, crying as we watched our sea of faces together. I wondered seriously, even after Toronto, does God really care? What is he like anyway, right, to let this happen? I never thought he would leave us in a situation, situation like this. Our daughter, Chrysalin, began to cry because she was so hungry and I thought I was going to snap. <clears throat> a precious woman from the U.S. Embassy came over with food. I brought you chili and rice for your family, she announced sweetly, with just enough for the four of us. We hadn't eaten in days. I opened a door and showed her all our children. I have a big family, she says. My friend got serious. There's not enough. I need to go home and cook some more. But I just asked her to pray over the food, and now she was really upset. Don't do this, she begged, but she prayed quickly. I got out the plastic plates we used for street outreaches and also a small pot of cornmeal I had. We began serving, and right from the start, I gave everyone a full bowl. I was dazed and overwhelmed. I barely understood at the time what a wonderful thing that was happening, but all of our children ate, the staff ate, my friends ate, and even our family of four ate. Everyone had enough. Since then, we have never said no to an orphaned, abandoned, or dying child. Now we feed and take care of more than 1,000 children. It's actually, I believe, in the tens of thousands now. They eat and drink all they want from the Lord's goodness. Because he died, there is always enough. I don't know Heidi. I know people who know Heidi. <clears throat> What do we do with that? And uh, during our discussion during second session, um, somebody brought up this story kind of generically and said, man, you know, 
it seems that the best, biggest miracles come where there is greatest need and greatest sacrifice and the most suffering. And I mean, I, I'll just be honest. I don't, I don't want to suffer like that. I want to see miracles like that, but I don't want to suffer like that. Um, <clears throat> and so maybe just a few things from this passage to help us orient toward the miraculous. Uh, the first is simply that Jesus sees the need. Jesus says, or asks his disciple, where will we get bread for all these people? And I know that that is not always our default uh, because like most of us are pretty well off. You know, we're fine. I'm fine. You're, you're fine. Everything's fine. Uh, people are fine. Marriages are, you know, they're fine. I'm okay. You're okay. Uh, and yet, sometimes it's just self-deception. And sometimes it's because we isolate ourselves from the people who are suffering most that are still close. Uh, but to open our eyes to the needs. The I'm fine way of living is not, is not conducive to experiencing miracles. You're fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Is different. Is a different mindset than I see need, and moreover, the disciples say like this is beyond us. Uh, their exact words are: even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough. The disciples are saying, "This is outside of my ability," uh, and this is. Uh, I mean, for, for me, I used to think that if I worked at a problem hard enough or long enough or gave it enough of my attention, I could solve it. I could solve all of my problems. Also, I could solve all of your problems if I just gave it enough time and energy uh, and attention. And, and I really, you know, I don't know if I'm the only one who had a savior complex when I was younger. Uh, maybe, you know, it's something many of us are still trying to get over. But like, I thought I could fix a lot of the world's problems too. But to realize our limits, to realize our limitations, children helped me learn my limitations. Uh, by the way, pastoring has helped too. But uh, there, there are needs out there in the lives of people I know, relationships that are so broken that no amount of counseling are going to repair. There are children that are suffering, and I could give every minute of the day, and I wouldn't move the needle much outside of God's intervention. So seeing need, really realizing our limits, but thirdly, I don't know why I didn't make a slide for this, uh, but our participation in what God is doing. So Jesus says, where's bread? And it's interesting that uh, the, the kind of bread that the boy brings, like he brings what he has and it's not much. In fact, it's even less than you thought because barley bread is, uh, is an indicator that this is a very poor boy. Uh, barley bread was eaten by peasants. The wheat, uh, which was grown again in the north where the, the soil was better, uh, was reserved for people who were well off, you know, like middle class and up. Barley loaves, I mean, they were just they're chewy and I mean, they're, they're dense for sure, but just not fine bread. Jesus takes what they, what he, uh, Jesus takes what the boy has, and does a miracle with it. The the disciples 
I mean, they don't perform the miracle, but they participate. Maybe with a little skepticism. And, and I, you know, you can't always know what the tone was, but in the, uh, even in the text, they seem a little grumpy about it. You know, like their idea is send them home, and Jesus says feed them. And they're feeling out of, like, they're feeling frustrated, like, I'm going to be embarrassed. Uh, we're going to be embarrassed in front of all these people. And yet they, they participate. They, they realize that they're with Jesus, and he can do this uh, at the end of the day. And so what does it look f- like for you to participate in what Jesus is doing? You don't, even if what you have is very little, even if what you have is one night a week, even if what you have is, you know, I got, I got $5 in allowance um, this past week. This month, uh, the Four Corners offering is going to uh, rip medical debt. I think that's what it's called. What's the multiplier on that again, Steph? $1 pays off how much debt? $10,000. I mean, that, that's not a miracle. That's just math. <laughs> In terms of, you know, you, you, can bring, you can have a $10 allowance, bring a dollar, and the kind of debt relief that people will experience because of what you brought. Like, this is... This is a, uh, a human initiative that works almost on like God's economy. You know, like five fishes feed, or five loaves feed 5,000 plus. That's the kingdom. A prayer prayed in faith doesn't guarantee an outcome, but God can use that. So, let's stand. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.